It's the True Penny Show with your host, James True Penny. Hello, welcome to the True Penny Show. My name is James True Penny, and this is my show. And today, as usual, around this time of year, we're not looking at WrestleMania. We're looking at the things that happen around WrestleMania. It is WrestleMania season. And if you will, um, as of late, like the last couple of years or so, the organization Game Changer Wrestling has kind of taken everybody under their wing <laughs> and given loads of indie shows, especially the last couple of years, because they were the only show in town apart from WWE. Obviously, there was no WrestleMania last year. There was a for the collective, uh, sorry, a collection sh- uh, collective show. I'll get it right in the end. A collective show later in the year, um, which featured some matches that me and Chelsea looked at last year as well. And this year, they did it the week of WrestleMania, and they did their usual big festivities of four or five days of wrestling in the run-up to WrestleMania. And they had some big-name matches on the variety of shows that they were doing. They were kind of the only indie show in town before we've had Ring of Honor go. AEW did a show, I think, not far away. But a lot of people were staying away, because obviously because of COVID protocols, because we've still got a lot of North American companies in their place. There was some things that weren't great about the show as far as like COVID is concerned, but I'm sure we'll get to that. But one person who knows pretty much more about GCW than anybody else I know is Mr. John Dinsdale. How are you, sir? I'm not so bad. This is going to be a fun trip down memory lane, considering I reviewed all 12 shows from this event. <laughs> and it? half Sorry, of them from the IWTV showcase that was playing at the same time. <laughs> <laughs> now, we did... Just pick two shows. We picked Bloodsport because we've kind of followed Bloodsport since its inception. And we picked for the culture, which we also have started to follow since its inception. We could have done all the shows, but we'd been here all week and it wouldn't have been a very pleasant because you haven't got time to speak about them if you watch them all, have you? I so... will give a special shout out to the main event of RSP Bring Break because... Nick Gage versus Ricky Shane Page was, again, an amazing match, must like much like it was last year. And we finally got the big, big sort of crowning of Nick Gage again. The king Indeed. Is back, he's got his crown, and his next challenger is John Moxley. Which is, of course, an intriguing kind of battle to lay up to. Um, I suppose we should talk about that first, because that kind of happened before other things. Moxley and GCW has kind of been an evolving story, hasn't it? Yeah, well, we're going to get to him here because he sort of joined the company to take part in Bloodsport. Yes, that was the that was his main thing was he really wanted to wrestle in Bloodsport because it's kind of uh, a very direct style of professional wrestling and he really wanted to wrestle Josh Barnett more than anything else. And here is his opportunity. It was a dream match for him. Um, and quite bizarrely today... Uh, pictures were released of him and Renick Paquette's uh, house in People magazine. If you if you want to go from the sublime to the ridiculous, John Moxley and Renick Paquette celebrate their new baby with new decorations, and there, there's a, a photo set of them having nice family time. And and last week he was bleeding all over the place, fighting jo- uh, Josh Barnett. It's hilarious because it seems like he wasn't happy with his AEW death match, so he's going to go into a real death match with Gage like 10, <laughs> 10, 12 years after the last time they bloody met up in CZW. It's amazing. 
So we picked these two shows. We picked Bloodsport and we've picked uh, For the Culture. So we're going to start with um, Bloodsport because that happened first. It was on the 4th of April. And it opened with dominant, well, it opened with a nice opening ceremony a la the UWF or one of the big Joshy shows of the 90s where everybody came out, which I like. It adds a sense of seriousness to things. Yeah, it's always fun to sort of see these little opening roll calls because it reminds you who's on the show, especially yeah. when there's 12 fights and you can yes. always get the little interactions with people. It's like there was a little kid in the crowd that kept, like, if the bigger guys came out, like, I think he did it with Schlack and he did it with Leo Rush. It was just like if if someone big came out, he was there to get a high five and the, the competitors were kind of like, this is ruining our image of the Royal Call, but it, it's a kid. So they. <laughs> this is this is the trouble as well, and we should probably talk about this and get this out of the way. The show was supposed to be socially distanced. There were supposed to be wash stations everywhere, and from reports of people who went, there wasn't wash stations everywhere. And looking at this video, people were clearly not socially distancing, nor was everyone wearing masks. And unsurprisingly, um, there was Teddy. a sorry Teddy Hart was in the front row. <laughs> Oh, we'll get well later. Let's get to Teddy Hart in a second. We may as well get that out of the way, too. Um, <laughs> um, yeah. And there was unsurprisingly cases of COVID after this show, which is the, and it's something GCW had problems with before, because last year they ran a show which was much more socially distanced and everyone wore masks and still they had an outbreak. I think it just depends on where you are. Like Indianapolis seems a bit more like socially responsible than Florida. Well, yes, um, because, you know, Florida. I know you hear all the jokes about Florida, and that's not really very fair. There are some very nice people who live in Florida, obviously. However, their governor is a nut bar. And so, the wrestlers kept taking pictures of stray chickens. Yes. They were just kind of roaming the streets. Apparently, yeah. Tampa is quite, uh, as they were saying, hood. <laughs> I'm pretty yes. sure it was, it was either Alphazor or Drog was sort of like, so we're going to talk about the fact that uh, Tampa's more ghetto than Compton. And I was just like, oh. Well, you know, it's it's an intriguing place. Famed home of the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, you know, Super Bowl winning uh, football team. Um, and also, statistically, the worst team in NFL history. <laughs> they have won a couple of Super Bowls, but it took an awful long time <laughs> like i'm talking 30 years before they were any good um but yeah um and yeah so let's let's go with the teddy Hart thing then shall we <laughs> to be fair there is a silver lining to that whole teddy Hart thing because he tried to do the same thing with an icw show the night after and both justin kyle and john wayne murdoch as well as the owner danny demanto escorted him out and basically threatened to kill him if he come, came back in. I think that was the issue. There was apparently the, what's the name of the owner of Game Changer Wrestling? I don't know. Brett Lauderdale. Brett Lauderdale said that, oh, I didn't know he was there. Really, Brett? Um, but, you know, a lot of the wrestlers were uncomfortable with it and there was a lot of kind of crossover with the other wrestlers in the other locker rooms. So when they had wrestlers who were comfortable with getting rid of him, they got rid of him. He also turned up at WrestleMania as well. There's photos of him being best mates with Davy Boy Smith, so no wonder he well, showed up at Bloodsport. They are related, so you would imagine, wouldn't you? Um, you know, so... Cause even, even so, you'd think 
given the reputation Teddy Hart has, it's just like, if you see him, just get rid of him. I know GCW was going through a bit of a logistical nightmare on day one. Yeah. Mainly because of heat. And, uh, yes, other issues, such as the Teddy Hart shaped yes. mass in front of the hard cam. Uh, Lady Frost as well reportedly said, uh, well, no, said over Twitter that Teddy Hart was trying to encourage people to give him $6,000 each for a Ponzi scheme. Ah, yes, I did hear about this. Yes, and it's like of all the people in wrestling, I would not give Teddy Teddy Hart $6, never mind $6,000, but there you go. Um, So that was a thing. I was honestly surprised he didn't get shot. Yeah, it's a possibility in kind of shows like that, to be honest with you. I don't even see my that. It's just he's walking around in Florida. People know who he is. All it takes is one like deranged fan with a gun to just be like, all right, let's get rid of this problem for good. Yeah, I, and he did go to WrestleMania, and someone pointed out, someone showed a video of him, and they said, as someone on the stage, how do you know it's Teddy Hart? To which the guy replied, he's wearing his wrestling gear to WrestleMania, because it's Teddy Hart. Uh, oh, there you go. But yeah, and he, he did wear his wrestling gear all week. I assume he took all of it with him because, you know. I don't <sighs> get what he's trying to do anymore. Like, people know what a scumbag you are. People know what you've done. Just just get lost. Just disappear. Teddy was, Teddy was on another planet good when he was younger, and he arguably could have been the most productive of all the Hart family. Like, you know, as an aerial wrestler, as an innovator... And his just his personal issues are that far gone, removed from what the rest of the world see. He's just that he's just uh, just wait. I hate to say wasted talent because it's his life and it's his choices. But yeah, you know what I mean. Yeah, he could have been amazing, and instead, we just yeah want him to vanish, get gone. <laughs> yeah, that's it. But there you go. Right, shall we go... Right, I think we've got pretty much all all the bad news out of the way, I think. Uh, Let's move on. Uh, I'm looking at the wrong actual Josh Barnett's blood spot. (laughs) We (laughs) opened with KZT, Karen Tran, defeating Janai Kai via Armbar. Yes, this was really good. I actually really enjoyed this. Um, It was very cool. I like both of these wrestlers. Um... I'd, I hadn't seen much of Karen Tran before, but I heard of her reputation. I follow General Kai on Twitter, and I've been looking at some of her highlight reels and stuff. Um, and it was interesting, because she's kind of like, you don't get too many stand-up strikers in blood sports, because it's kind of like the grappler's domain. That's kind of the thing they do. So to see someone who was so adept at kicks, for a start, was really intriguing. And Carol Tran, who's a, a badass shooter, and she's a grappler as well. It was styles make fights. That's, as I said on commentary before, you know, later in the evening, styles make fights. So if you've got someone who's a striker going up against a grappler, it's in- instantly interesting, isn't it? Yeah, the, I have I have experience with Janai Kai from like the UWFI Contender Series at Paradigm. Yeah. So I was already looking forward to this fight and to see her going against someone as adept at grappling as kzt it was just yeah great match great action and it really sort of set the tone for what the show was going to be like 
Yeah, for sure. It's uh, it was interesting to see them. Uh, it, it kind of, it's kind of a bit of an honor on a big show like this to get the opening match. It's not kind of like the graveyard shift it was for some, like it is for some wrestling companies, and they showed off their wares really, really well. It is, uh, you know, people have got big opportunities out of Bloodsport. You know, it's um, Matt Riddle kind of made his name in North America using like the Bloodsport brand because it used to be Matt Riddle's Bloodsport back in the day, didn't it? You know, that big match he had with Minoru Suzuki in New Orleans did an awful lot of good for him. Um, and so showing your wares off to such a high standard here was really, really good. Okay, then we move on to the second match, which was Matt Mikowski, uh, Weapon X. He defeated Hadidi Karuki in six minutes and 46 seconds. Am I pr pronouncing that right? Karuai. Karu is French, I think isn't it? It was Karui. Karui, yeah. Um, the French Lucha submission specialist, which was really intriguing me. <laughs> to be fair, if anyone was going to keep, like, Mikowski under wraps, it was someone like him. Like, it yeah. was... This was really competitive. And, yeah, I, I love Mikowski's sort of armbar suplex just trap. It, it looks nightmarish. <laughs> <laughs> I like her, I like his build. He looks like a wrestler should look. Like squat, short, not short, but well built across the shoulders, stocky, but he had loads of mobility as well. Mm. So yeah, I, I really enjoyed that. And uh, Mikowski is awesome. Just is awesome. He's um you know, he's come from uh Noel's Bad Fighting and he's really transferred well to pro wrestling I find, I'm finding it intriguing at the minute because like I just watched a bunch of stuff of Minoru Suzuki's early career in the UWF um, for a podcast that me and Christy are recording tomorrow which you'll hear later in the week uh, on our new In the Beginning series and um, I was kind of looking at that and it, Minoru was kind of putting pro wrestling into shoot fighting he does a lot of pro wrestling style stuff that you probably shouldn't do in shoot fighting um, but it looks a lot like this. And like Caraway and Mikowski wrestle a lot like Suzuki do, if that makes sense. Like, yeah. Yeah, like shooters with a little bit of pro wrestling in it. Just a little bit. Well, Caraway was bringing his own interesting little flair as well. So it was like we had this new sort of style meets the sort of traditional blood spot pro wrestling meets sort of shoot fighting style. And yeah, yeah. it just genuinely built for an interesting fight. I like the idea that Lucha Libre has a shoot style within itself. That's hell that's hilarious in the sense of like Lucha Libre is the ultimate show style of wrestling, but they actually have some serious shooters down there as well. Yeah, considering a lot of Lucha Libre is more technical based, I'm surprised it doesn't sort of enter the blood spot sort of dorm more often. I mean, I've had, well, currently one of the, the most famous shooter out of the entire Lucha Libre community is currently on trial. So, um, yeah. <laughs> okay, most of. Yes. So, and it's like the shoots, the, the submission style in Lucha Libre is very different looking. It's kind of realistic looking, but it's also a bit strange because of the way that they work from the left and they sorry work from the right rather than left 
is a little well if you're a pro wrestler in the western world or in japan you always work from the the left or if you're in mexico you work from the right so it it makes everything look very different it's then it's an intriguing way of the, the way wrestling culture has developed but yeah that match was really really good and it kind of like shows uh, a lot of development for both wrestlers so next up we had Bad dude Tito versus Victor Benjamin, who was with Lady Frost. That's that, that's her husband. Um, five minutes and eight seconds in a really fun match. I enjoyed this. Bad dude Tito is indeed a bad dude. It was nice to see bad dude, bad dude Tito finally sort of get the big Bloodsport win because he was kind of like the almost winner in Bloodsports four and five. Yeah. So to see him put on like a showcase performance here in front of a crowd and pick up a win after dealing with a very tough opponent in Victor Benjamin, the savage it, gent. It was just yeah. He's got everything going for him. He's got he's got a cool gimmick. He he can wrestle really, really well. Uh got the build. Everything's there, really. I found myself rooting for Benjamin before I'd even got like into the ring because he came out to a round table rival. Which is one of the best songs ever composed. <laughs> yeah. Uh, interestingly, um, put a challenge out to Ken Shamrock for the next Blood Sport last night on Twitter um, and then had to explain who he was to Ken Shamrock. Um, it's unfortunate, but there we are. <laughs> Shamrock's in, like, shown interest in being a Blood Sport. Yes. So... He's. It, well, Ken doesn't really connect with the modern wrestling world except for the bits he's involved in at the time. So at the minute, he's kind of semi-involved in Impact because he was signed to Impact for a while. But that's about the full stretch of his kind of thought process. It doesn't really think outside of the thing that's directly in front of him. So um, when Josh Bar- um, uh, Victor Benjamin asked Josh Barnett over Twitter if Ken Shamrock was available to do Bloodsport stuff, and Joshua said, yeah, sure, we'll talk to him, see what he wants to do, and then said, I'd like to challenge him. And then Ken was like, well, I don't actually know who you are. <laughs> Just like, okay. And then Victor was like 15 years of pro wrestling and shoot fighting. He's pretty handy. He knows what he's doing. So that'd be intriguing. I'd like to see that myself. It has got the makings of a very interesting little match. Mm. Yes. Anyway, we should move on. Speaking of somebody else who's kind of made Bloodsport their home, Simon Grimm defeated Alexander James in six minutes and 23 seconds. You'll notice none of these matches are going for an epic 20 minutes or anything because they're going really hard. This is stiff, stiff, stiff stuff. So, you know, they can't really, you know, um, go for much longer than six or seven minutes without hurting each other. So this is kind of old school shoot style rules and kind of approach. But this was fun. I like Simon Grimm a lot um, as a wrestler, uh, especially when he's kind of in this shooty style mode. And it's a world away from the Vaudevillians in NXT, but I think this is where he's actually really, really good at. Well, before um, Grimm ever made it to NXT, he was like a fully sort of certified shoot fighter-style wrestler. He sort of lost mm. that for a bit whilst he was in NXT, and then ever since he sort of got released again, he's been sort of showing across any company he's in how good a wrestler he actually is. And Bloodspot's always been that sort of spotlight for him even if he does come up short more often than not. Here, we had, like, the ultimate sort of grapplers bout, with Grimm being the more aggressive one in the fight for 
ones. He's usually more of the defensive. I'll just pick me moment and trap the person and make them <laughs> make them cry. Here he was actually sort of being the aggressor. It was a really damn good match. Again, the, this is going to be the trend. It's just all really damn good matches because yeah. they're all concise, miniature sort of story told, like shoot fighting. It's literally yeah. just get in, get the job done, get your win or make get your loss and get like move. It's it's very rapid fire, but it it works so well. I should we should also point out the rules as well. It's, there's no pinfalls, there's no ropes, um, submissions, knockouts are the only way to win, and that's it. Our referee's decision, I should say as well. Um, so yeah, it's very very simple. It's it's kind of wrestling as it used to be it's very much based on josh barnett's philosophy of wrestling professional wrestling which is highly influenced by carl gotch billy robinson and antonio inoki you know and that's that's the way he wrestles if anyone who saw him wrestle bobby lashley on impact a couple of years ago when impact was uh, when bobby lashley was impact world champion that style of wrestling is really what josh barnett does better than anybody else and he likes to have that kind of style of wrestling to be associated with that store. He didn't really, you could tell in his voice when um, he was commentating on New Japan with Jim Ross, he didn't really like modern New Japan pro wrestling that much because it was a bit too far removed from the shoot style that he liked. And this is kind of the thing he likes to do. 100%. Right this this could have been, couldn't have fallen to someone who would respect it more when Riddle sort of left the mantle yeah. got went to someone who definitely cares. Yeah, and to be fair to um, Josh, he has a sense of humour for a start because me and a couple of friends uh, <laughs> suggested uh, when when Disco Inferno had no idea who Nick Gage was over Twitter that that maybe Josh could put that match together for us. And Josh was like, "Hey, I wouldn't say no. I'd like to see that myself." Um, <laughs> Yeah, um, I, love, I love Barnett. He just seems like such a like a decent guy. Yeah, like this metalhead nerd who will also sort of just break your jaw. <laughs> yeah, that's in. Um, yeah, just an incredibly also kind of. If you listen to his interview with uh, his Stone Cold Steve Austin interview, um, he goes to some dark places because it's a. Uh, Stone Cold asked him about, like, how do you prepare for, for a UFC fight? And he said, I put my favorite CDs on, I listen to them, and I fully expect that I may not get out the other end alive. And he was like, oh, okay. Yeah, it's like Steve's like, okay, like, moving on. <laughs> hmm. Right, then, where are we? Um, next up, there's an interesting kind of thing. Royce Isaacs, I believe he's still, may well still be, the NWA World Tag Team Champion, uh, was defeated by Alex Coughlin of the LA Dojo in five minutes and seven seconds. Alex Coughlin doesn't win matches on New Japan shows, obviously. <laughs> well, he didn't win the last encounter they had at Bloodspot 5. No. So this was really intriguing. It's like, young boy wins wrestling match. He has more wins than the entire LA and Tokyo dojos put together. Because <laughs> he has one. This was like a more heated version of their Bloodspot 5 match. Because they sort of both knew what the other was going to throw at them. 
this time and it was yeah very much a case of uh -uh, that's not going to work this time and just yeah brutal sort of violence it was real again much like every other match really damn fun (laughs) (laughs) but yeah i like rice isaacs a lot and i've liked his tag team in the nwa it was nice to see him do something different because he does that traditional southern cocky heel, that Arn Anderson kind of Tully Blanchard kind of deal really, really well. So doing something different with this was a lot of fun to see too. Definitely. It's it's always nice to sort of see how multifaceted like different wrestlers can be when you put them in different scenarios. And Alex Coughlin as well is is really growing. I would guess that this came along with the um help from Rocky Romero. because uh, Rocky's on this card too. So I'm wondering, I know Rocky spends a lot of time in different offices around North America, fostering relationships like with AEW and with Ring of Honor and uh, Impact Wrestling. So I'm wondering how much time he spent at uh, Josh Barnett's house. <laughs> it's quite interesting because um, a Bloodspot 5, uh, oh no, sorry, Bloodspot 4, Coughlin had his first match back after mm. his neck injury. Then he faced Isaacs at 5 and lost and now they're 1-1 one, one because of this one which just leads me to believe we should get another one that's going to be even more heated than this one was which i cannot wait for fair enough all right then we move on to another match which i will be honest i didn't watch because it involves slack and that's someone i've no interest in watching i don't think he's a particularly nice person and there's plenty of evidence online as to know the reasons why i don't particularly like him john has a different mindset to me we have discussed this. John is quite happily to free to talk about this match if he wants to, but it's not something I particularly want to get involved with. So, John, the floor is yours. So, Schlack and Super Beast went to a DQ. This this is the first DQ in Bloodspot history, as far as I'm aware of, and of course, Schlack would be the guy to get it. Now, Schlack is a weird performer because he is mostly deathmatch-related, and sometimes you will see him in his matches, attempt to bust out, like, proper good old-fashioned technical and submission wrestling, earning him the joking nickname Schlack Saber Jr. We didn't get that here. This was about two, three minutes of brawling, and Super Beast put on a knee bar, and Schlack bit and bit and bit and wouldn't let go of stop biting until basically the ref pulled him off, and yeah, Schlack was DQ'd. And somehow that just feels fitting. <laughs> okay. But yeah, yeah we we discussed the sort of Schlag situation. I will defend him because he's kind of the linchpin of my deathmatch division. But everyone is entitled to their own opinions, and I will not argue with them on them. I think I think um, I mean Colette Rand did a, a a big long piece on on Schlack in in fan on Fanbyte and expressed her issues with him. And as she put in there, the, the, the key thing is, is for a promoter, is Schlack makes money. And that that is one of the things that does tend to get um, ignored by people is he, he is a draw, uh, specifically in the style that you're talking about, very much so. Um, but again, it's just something I'm not interested in, so that's the reason why I'm not commenting on it. But we'll move on um, to something much more my steam and two of my actual favourite wrestlers, Masha Slamovich was defeated by AK-47 Allison K in 5 minutes and 45 seconds. 
Masha uh, is a wrestler from Marvelous in Japan. She's a, um, a trainee of Chigasaw Nagayo. She spent a lot of time over there recently. Uh, I think she had a full year over there. She's in North America at the moment. Alison Kay, or Sienna, as she's known for Impact fans, will know her as Sienna. Um, and former NWA Women's Champion, former Knockouts Champion. The woman can do it all. And this is kind of her bag as well. She's a, a MMA trainee. She does a lot of jiu-jitsu um, and a lot of catch wrestling. Uh, Masha does, obviously, a lot of uh, catch wrestling as well. So this was perfect match for me. And actually, my match of the night, to be honest with you, even though the cage match users do not agree with me, <laughs> which is annoying because I thought they were really good together. But it's just my kind of thing. What did you think of it, John? Yeah, I'm glad I'm finally getting to see sort of Ma- Masha Slamovich in action because, like, I've seen gifs over like the marvelous sort of year, and then as she sort of come back to the states, I've started seeing her for more and more matches, and she is just an absolute badass. So when you sort of pair up with another absolute badass in Alison Cage, just yeah, this was one of the best matches of the show. They both got the other's style perfectly. They both knew how to sort of work around the other, and yeah, just a very nice competitive match. Yeah, and Masha is just ace. I've talked to her a bit on Twitter. We follow each other on Twitter, and she's a lovely human being, but just really, really good at what she does. And she uh, has a habit of cracking me up. Sorry. Her Twitter feed has a habit of like cracking me off. She's just, just such a fun sort of person. Yes, and she's like she's a dead serious wrestler, and she has kind of like Russian gimmick about her. But equally, she just likes having fun too. Um, like she sort of ruined the complete prog art seminar by attacking Edith Surreal. And was just like, what? You don't like my art? <laughs> and then a couple of days later posts a picture of herself holding up a picture frame saying hey look I made it surreal it's just <laughs> it's such a sort of old school way of doing things but it's so damn entertaining and Alison Kay is just like she's, she's so good she's basically she's so good at being a heel that she's become popular just because she's that good She's a baby face by default. She doesn't really change anything from being a baby face to a heel. Even her NWA run where she was the baby face, she was a bit of a jerk, <laughs> really. But it's just that she is that good and she she's well worth the price of admission by herself. And she is kind of a throwback to the, you know, the older style women wrestlers of the 70s and 80s in the sense she's not a big aerial wrestler. She doesn't do a lot of high-flying stuff. She's big impact, big power move wrestler. But she's as technical as they come as well. She just wants to kill you. Like, that's that's kind of how it all boils down to it. She's like, she'll either break a limb or she'll break your face. <laughs> and it's, it's so perfect for, like, the character she goes for. She's just, like, one of the best out there at the moment. It's interesting, the fact that we've still got five matches left and we've already been talking about the show for half an hour. <laughs> It, it just flies by. It's so easy to talk about. Leo Rush versus Yoya. Seven minutes and 40 seconds. This was awesome. This was, was just fun. I was so happy for Yoya. Again, another guy who's been tearing it up on like the Paradigm UWFI series. Yeah. He's such a like gifted like MMA guy. The shooter with. And he was sort of put on a big stage with one of the biggest wrestlers on the indies right now and yeah, yeah he 
100% made the most of it. It was a simple story of Leo underestimating his opponent, and that's the way that they went with the match. And Leo sneaks the result in the end. But it was one of the longest matches on the card up until that point for a start. And, uh, yeah, it was just exceptionally good. It was really and... interesting to see Rush get technical. It's something you don't see all the time because we always associate him with his high-flying. But yeah, but um, celebrated amateur wrestler at school, high school level, wasn't he? And came yeah, in a singlet, not in not in his usual tights. He actually came in a singlet for this. And he was definitely showing that off throughout. Just like, you might be MMA, I'm catch. Let's see who's better. Yeah, and that's it. Um, speaking of catch wrestlers, <laughs> uh, arguably, arguably one of the best catch wrestlers in the world. And I mean that in a shoot style as well as in a... Um, uh, in the professional wrestler in KTB, 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 KTB was defeated in three minutes and thirty six seconds in what can very be say was a squash by Davy Boy Smith Jr. This was a hammering. I, <laughs> I'm going to be honest. About fifty percent of the time, I hate Davy Boy Smith Jr.'s blood spot matches. Why is like, that? He's one of my like. He's one of the best on the scene. Very, very, very gifted wrestler. But when it comes to blood spot, he always gets given squash matches against opponents who don't deserve to be squashed. Like he did it to Alexa- Josh Alexander last yeah. year, and I was pissed off at that one. And it happened here again because KTB was in the very sort of first blood spot. He has been in blood spot before, and nobody seemed to remember that. And then here he is being squashed, despite the fact that, again, KTB is another one of these sort of big guy, hyper-athletic, yet also technically gifted wrestlers, and he didn't even get a chance to really show it because, oh, Davy Boy Smith just killed him. Yeah, I'm guessing they're bringing up Davy Boy for a match with somebody else and they need him to be hot, which is perfectly understandable, but you're doing it at the expense of your roster. And also, obviously, Davy Boy lost on the... I think he lost at the last blood sport to Davy... To Moxley, so they're trying to get him hot again, and somebody has to lose in those situations. And to be fair, Harry's the bigger draw, isn't he? So he's he's going to win. So I feel like if you were going to get anyone, like if you were going to like let Schlack get murdered by anyone, I would have picked Heavy Boy Smith over Super. <laughs> <laughs> See, then you'd have been interested. <laughs> mm, nah, probably not. I mean, Harry's a a raving Trump supporter. Um, but equally, you know, he hasn't actually gone out of his way to say anything racist, sexist, um, no. misogynistic, or, you know, he is just a Trump supporter. He, his, his political campaigning is very slim. And we it's still like, follow, follow each other on Twitter. And if he could put up with my um, liberal-minded stream of consciousness, then I'm sure, you know, it, live and let live. This is it. Not, not all Trump supporters are bad. No, this is true. You know. Charlie Shakespeare, who former host of Russell Talk TV, who is a raving Tory, absolutely like bleeding bleeds blue Tory, still follows me on Twitter. And despite the fact we have had massive political arguments down the line, and he's like, "Well, you're entitled to your opinion." So it's like, fair enough. Then I, I, I don't mind. That's how it should be. Yes, that's the way it should be. Anywho, shall we move on? We get on so well. (laughs) Yeah, because we let each we can have each of the week 
well, no one shuts anybody down on opinions. If you personally said something misogynistic, racist, sexist, or homophobic, which is highly unlikely, then we'd have an issue. But you don't. So no, I, I like to think that unless I'm trying to be like the edgy comedian, which doesn't happen very often these days, I'm I'm a nice person. You are genuinely a nice guy. And nice guy, John. There I'll you. tell you what wasn't nice. Trevor Guerrero towards Rocky Romero. <laughs> Nah, this was intriguing. This was uh, two Latinx wrestlers of legendary status with a combined age of somewhere around about 90. Um, and it was fun for what it was, but it was a bit weird because it wasn't really a shoot fight and it wasn't really a wrestling match. And it was kind of bits of a wrestling match and bits of a shoot fight. And when Chavo kind of like started to go for three amigos, I was like, oh my God, what's he doing? And then he stopped. Because <laughs> we realized he couldn't get away with it in this kind of environment. It was less it was... three amigos and more three times I'm going to drop you on your head. And yes, this mm. felt like the sort of the next chapter in the Chavo Guerrero versus El Chico Luchador feud <laughs> of talk and chopper mania. Except now it was on like in a proper fight, and I hope I look that good at fifty. Like, Chavo oh, Guerrero Jr. is 50, and look at him. Like, what? That is mental. How old is, Ro- How old is Rocky? Rocky's, Rocky's oh. 38. Compared to 50, that's that's a baby compared to 50. Yeah, yeah, Chavo, but Chavo's something else. Like, there are very few wrestling minds as good as Chavo Guerrero Jr. I don't um, know the fact he came out to his WWE music. Uh, that was probably more GCW choice than his. <laughs> it was. This was this was an odd match, but again, it it offered something different. Yeah, it was, which is which is the thing because the thing is with shoot fighting and and the the trouble with blood sport as I've watched it in the past is you can have three or four matches that look awfully similar, and they seem to go. This is the best show, come like best complete package show I've seen that that they've done, and I think they've got the kind of like formula right. The match lengths were right. The makeup of the wrestlers were right. The styles were right. Whereas previously, they've kind of had matches that have been very samey. The matches have either gone on too long or not been long enough. Um, and yeah, this was just about perfect, I think. For 12 fights, it didn't feel very samey at all. No, it didn't. And to be honest with you, Chris Dickinson versus Shane Mesa was, was not going to be samey either. Because these two are big hitters, and it looked like a big hitters match, and it felt like a semi-main event should feel, and it was just right, wasn't it? It was uh, Dickinson's obviously red hot now with New Japan Strong and with Ring of Honor starting the new faction over there, and he's finally getting the recognition that perhaps he deserved five or six years ago, and he's kept himself incredibly fit and incredibly over, technically gifted. I do like, I have to say, the Takada-style lilac pants are awesome. Uh, tights and boots that's great um and he's kind of like yeah kind of like the american takada he kind of does his own thing and people have to follow what he does but it takes a while for people to come around to him but i've certainly come around to the way chris dickinson thinks what about you oh chris dickinson's one of my favorites in gcw he he always has been i love the sort of no shits given this is me this is my style i'm a student of this type of game and i will modernize it or make it as old school as I feel and in this fight you had 
Mercer, who is an absolute demon. He is sort of like the ultimate hybrid sort of athlete because he's built like a brick shit house. He hits hard, he can throw you hard, he can fly, and he's MMA trained. So this was someone who was going to make Dickinson's life hell, and he did for quite a lot of this match. This was Dickinson realizing his normal strategy wouldn't work and trying to think of, well, how am I going to beat this guy and eventually finding the way. Change the story. That's what this was about, and it was brilliantly well done. And then we get to the main event of the evening, which would be Josh Barnett, and he would defeat John Moxley in 11 minutes and 7 seconds, meaning only three people have defeated John Moxley since he left WWE, Kenny Omega, Josh Barnett, and Toru Yano. We all know who the scariest is out of them. Yeah, Toru Yano. Um, yeah, Moxley. He always gets you with something you'll never see coming. No, well, to be fair, Moxley didn't see an awful while Barnett was coming because he had blood in his eyes for most of this match. Um, this was brutal. It was. It was proper stiff. And, like, Moxley is not a shoot fighter by any stretch of the imagination. And he's got a lot better at that style. And he's kind of wanted to do this style for a while. He turned up to Bloodsport even when he was in WWE. When the rumours died that he wanted to leave the company, he turned up to Bloodsport and was seen in the back and didn't really make an awful big secret out of it. I am sure that Vince McMahon was very pleased with that outcome. Um, but this is the kind of thing he's wanted to do for a long time. He's he's literally running off the wrestler's bucket list of what he wants to do. You know, um, he wanted to wrestle a G1. He's done that. He wanted to wrestle in Japan on a regular basis. He's done that. He hasn't done the Tokyo Dome yet. He keeps missing out on that, but there's a possibility there. Oh, no, he, did, well, no, he didn't do the Tokyo Dome for the last two years, has he? No, 2022 seems like it might finally be that year. Yeah. Um, wanted to wrestle in a shoot-style fight. Wanted to wrestle death matches. Wanted to do an explode. He's, he's literally doing the bucket list. Something um, Dave Bixon span was talking about it this, this week, and I, I, talk, I was talking with Bix about it, and... I said it was something that MVP said when he signed with New Japan Pro Wrestling whilst he was still signed with the WWE and moved on to New Japan Pro Wrestling, which was MVP said, I always wanted a Corvette and then someone bought me a Rolls Royce. That doesn't mean I stopped wanting the Corvette. And I think that's really important. This is, this is what Moxley wants to do as a professional wrestler and he's getting to do it. And he's used the money WWE paid him to essentially have a working holiday in whatever promotion he wants to work in. And I think that's incredible. Yeah, he Moxley's never done this for money. He's just doing this for the, the sort of hell of it at this point. He's like, well, this is what I want to do. I've got the means to do it, so I'll do it. And uh, yeah. he's not even bothered about wins or losses. He's just there to wrestle because he loves to wrestle. Yeah, and... You know, AEW pays the bills and everything else he does is gravy. And as AEW doesn't have a full touring schedule at the moment, he's pretty much free to do what he wants to do. So long as he turns up for TV on Wednesday. When like, they need him. As I said, I'm I'm can't wait to see him hopefully do this death match with Gage because it's been so many years in the making since I last locked up. Like before he was in NXT. Moxley was a deathmatch guy. Mm. 
and he was a very good deathmatch guy. And hopefully he'll still be a very good deathmatch guy. <laughs> There's just did so much hype around him now. He is kind of like the hottest man in like just wrestling as a, a whole. Because I think so. He'll do anything he feels like. Deathmatches, sign me up. Shoot fights, sign me up. A New Japan tournament, sign me up. He. I think... Sorry, Cameron. No, I was just going to say he's sort of ready to do it all. Yeah, and I think... I think this is it. This is his, this is his money run. And I'm wondering what Seth Rollins is thinking right now. <laughs> I think Roman Reigns is probably like, yeah, you go do what you want to do. I'm not doing that. <laughs> but I think Seth Rollins would be more along the lines of, Wish I was having matches with a card. Or... <clears throat> but there you go. So, but that's that's the way things are, and I'm sure Seth is very happy with his number one heel status in WWE and making tons of money hand over fist, and happily at home with his uh, fiance and baby. But there you go. You'd um, have to stop social media, which Rollins can't really do. No, that's true. Um. Let us move on to, well, let's, let's just wrap up with that. I mean, like I said, I think it's probably the strongest blood sport I've seen um, out of all of the ones that I've watched. And I think the, the balance is there. And there's a certain evolution in this particular style. And they seem to have evolved the style, which is difficult when you only run like two shows a year. So, yeah. What are your thoughts on blood sport and where can it go from here? See, this was definitely one of the best they've done. It sort of had the most variety. It gave opportunities to new up-and-comers. It brought back regulars. It it had a nice balance. It took advantage of where it was, like, on a card. It, it was kind of the biggest show of night one, so they sort of went all out for that. It wasn't overshadowed by anything, and... Yeah, hopefully this just means we keep getting bigger and better blood spots as time goes on. We had uh, four and five not so long back as the double pack from the warehouse where they'd up the production value, they'd up the violence a bit, and it's it'll always be there, I hope. It's definitely one of the most interesting shows you'll always see on the collective or, or just in general when they run them. And there's just so many options. Like, I always go back to Filthy Tom Lawler versus Homicide from Bloodsport 3, mm. which, on paper, you just felt like, how the hell does that work? And then it turned out to be one of Homicide's crowning moms again because he reminded everyone how good of a damn wrestler he was whilst also throwing in some hardcore, which is something you don't see in Bloodsport. There are always coming up with matches that sort of push what you think about Bloodspot and that should hopefully continue with whatever next show they do. Yeah, they always tweak the formula a little bit just to make things interesting which is evolution, you know it could be that is the trouble with shoot style wrestling is the fact that it kind of can get the same because the wrestlers are kind of the same, that's kind of the point Um. But, you know, even if you listen back to our Beginner's Guide to Japan series, you will see the amount of shoot promotions that we talk about that stop being shoot promotions because you either have to be actually full-on shoot and do it properly to make it interesting, or you kind of have to be pro wrestling to make it interesting. And anything that's in between loses its flavor after 
not very long, really. All loses its, it all causes itself problems because you can't wrestle at this kind of pace five or six nights a week. Like, you know, New Japan will go on tour for two weeks on, two weeks off, and quite happily everyone will have a nice rest and work tag matches and maybe have one big singles match a month. And that's fine. And they can all wrestle, wrestle like that all year round. You cannot hit each other this hard more than once a month. <laughs> it just doesn't work like that. So you can't run this as a touring kind of enterprise because you just break wrestlers. Um, so, yeah, it has to be special. And they do, they're doing a much better job of presenting it as a complete product, I think. We're also still waiting to see who's actually going to beat Barnett. Yeah, this is true. And that's the big story. He's their Suzuki undertaker, took isn't he? took a time limit draw. Dickinson lost. Mox has lost. So who can beat Barnett? There you go. And that's something to, to build through. Uh, Harry Smith hasn't got there yet, though, has he? So that's maybe something they're waiting for, to give him a real big blow-off. But we'll see. Shall we move on to For the Culture? Yes, let's do so. Yes. If you've not come across For the Culture before, it tends to celebrate the culture of African-American and Latinx wrestling. Really? That's not to say that all of the wrestlers are Latinx or um, African-American. They aren't. Mostly they are. But it's that culture of the culture, uh, of uh, certainly of minority wrestling in North America. And I find it really interesting because a lot of these people I don't see very often <laughs> because of that reason, because they're not on the mainstream shows all the time. And you see the, the gap between the top and the bottom is getting closer. The guys in the opening match are getting close to the guys in the main event. And that's kind of what you have these shows for, to give people exposure, but also to teach them how to handle the big stage and make them give them better opportunities down the line. And I think this is really cool. So this show started with Troy Hollywood, AC Mack, Alpha Zoe, D-Rogue, Mysterious Q, and Robert Mata in a scrabble match in 6 minutes and 55 seconds, which was a ton of fun and run by Troy Hollywood. I will admit, not an awful lot of this stuck out to me. Because <laughs> it was just, hey, woo, hey, woo, fireworks for six minutes. And there's nothing wrong with that, but it makes it difficult to follow. Uh, what are your thoughts on this one, John? Yeah, I just love Mysterious Q. Like, um, <laughs> Calvin Tankman pointed him out to me when I interviewed him for MLW a few weeks back. And since mm. then, every time I've seen Mysterious Q, like, holy shit, he is awesome. He's like 6'5", luchador. And it's the things he does are insane. And then, yeah, he just had him in a scramble with a bunch of like other highly talented athletes. And yeah, you get six minutes of magic, which you can't really comment on because it's like this happened, this happened, this happened, this happened, this happened. This all happened at once. You couldn't quite tell what was. It was just fun. It's it's the perfect quintessential sort of GCW show opening scramble. It was a bunch of stuff match. Also, I love the fact that even though it was an opening scramble, we still gave AC Mac a live mic to be a dick. It's just perfect. <laughs> that was a really cool intro. I am the big star, and you will all listen to me, and then I will get my head kicked in. That was I, really cool. AC Mac is just amazing. He, he really doesn't quite get the sort of spotlight he deserves a lot of the time. Like A lot of I, indies celebrate him, but he needs... He deserves more. I think that's the I think that's the thing. And kind of reason why you have shows like this is because 
people in this community don't get their due, perhaps sometimes. Having said that, I mean, we just had like a pay per view. We've literally had WrestleMania headlined by two African American women. We just had Slammiversary uh, headlined by two African American men. So they are getting their due, but you know what I mean. Um, somebody pointed out today, like all the women that were let go by WWE this week, none of them were blonde and none of them had blue eyes. Which was, which, which and they're right. Someone posted, posted a picture of the Bellas and uh, the Iconics and Mandy Rose. And Mandy Rose is the only person left out of that picture who's working for the company. <laughs> it's like, Hmm. <laughs> but there you go. It's and Did yeah. You care, Billy cares about to become the indie's newest megastar. Uh, if she is not part of AEW's women division in like the next ten minutes, and Peyton Royce as well. Karen was a tag team. There's your AEW tag team championship, women's championships, right there. You put them, put belts on them forever, and they will entertain you. You create championships just for them. Champions on arrival. You should do it like that. There you go. You should do it like the kangaroos. Do you do you remember the kangaroos? You're not old. Do you know who the kangaroos are? Who are the kangaroos? The fabulous kangaroos were a tag team in the 1960s and 70s, and they were Australians, funnily enough. And they were like the first mega heel tag team. They were the first proper heel tag team. And they would turn up as the US champions <laughs> um, and defend the US champion and introduce the US championships. They did it in WWF, they did it in Florida as well, and they did it in Puerto Rico. And basically, they would be champions on arrival. They got into the WWE Hall of Oh, no, the, the Wrestling Hall of Fame, the NWA one, the NWA Associated one. And the, their induction was, as always, champions on arrival. So you, you just get Billy Kay and um, Peyton Royce to turn up as AEW Women's Tag Team Champions. Just just don't do anything. No tournaments or nothing. Just, they just walk on TV and that's it. <laughs> With the belts and they go from there. It'd be really cool. It'd be an old school wrestling angle and them two could pull it off, I think. I don't even watch WWE, but I love them too because I just like watching their skits and stuff like that. They were, they're brilliant. Absolute genius. The pair of them. I, I don't looking at looking at Twitter once it was sort of announced that the sort of Iconics had been released. If I wasn't even announced it was the Iconics, if it was just Billy Kay, Peyton Royce came like half an hour later. Yeah. And everyone was just like, oh my god, I want Billy Kay. I want to wrestle Billy Kay. And it's just yeah. like, people have realised just how sort of good she is in the background. She's Yeah. Like, she is so like, again, multifaceted. I mean, people people thought Peyton Royce was going to be the one that cracked it because she was athletically more gifted, well, which she may well be, but that doesn't Billy count Kay for what. Billy that rare trait of, like, perfect comedic timing. Yeah, exactly. She is the Harotta yeah. of... Yeah, she is. Well, there you go. Maybe, she, maybe they could have, like, that, that the John Moxley run of women's tag teams. <laughs> There's, just, okay. there's so much potential with them that just never got explored. Yeah, and like, let's not even get started on Samoa Joe. So I can understand what Samoa Joe in one, in one sense makes more sense than them two, in the sense he has been a bit fragile. But equally, he's just commentated on WrestleMania. This is it. <laughs> just let him go out of nowhere. 
Like, I imagine yeah. he just kind of wanted... He probably wanted out anyway, because they weren't using him outside of commentary. Yeah. So he wants but, like, to wrestle, he wants to wrestle. I I remember everyone was started doing the Dream Match tweets, and I, I did one, and it was literally just like, I want to see Samoa Joe against anyone on the Paradigm roster. Yeah. Because... I've, I've talked about them a lot, but they are genuinely one of my sort of favorite promotions at the moment because they mm. they hover between doing a series of UWFI rules matches and then they've got this sort of experimental wrestling no-hook series mm. and they're just continuously sort of trying to evolve and they've got one of the best wrestlers of sort of both discovered and undiscovered talent. It's just amazing. Paradigm intrigued me just because they started out kind of like a... Essentially, the West Coast Wrestling Connection Las Vegas office. <laughs> you know, they started off as a traditional wrestling company, and then every time I hear about them now, they're doing something weird and wonderful and different. Is oh, they've, the, got a, they've got Terminal Combat coming up next month, and that's um, it starts off under like UWFI rules, and then after five minutes, if you haven't won, it becomes a hardcore match. Didn't D'Lo Brown used to be involved with them? Uh. Possibly. Back in the early days. I think his training school's in Vegas and they were the main training school for the show. I've only kind of gotten like probably into them since their show at the collective, so I'm still kind of working my way back through them. Okay. So oh, I've, yes. I've known about them since October. Anyway, back to um the for the culture show. The second match was an impromptu Impact Knockout Tag Team Championship match as the champions, Kira Hogan and Tasha Steeles, Flyer and Flavor, defeated the challengers Thicky and Thick and Juicy 2.0, Brooke Valentine and Willow Nightingale, uh, with the retired Paige Jackson at ringside. Um, 10 minutes and 30 seconds of an incredibly entertaining professional wrestling match. I genuinely believe Fire and Flavor may be the best women's tag team in the world right now. Um, and they showed it. They they really are on fire. And I have to say, I was very impressed with Brooke Valentine as a young lady who I've not seen much of. I'm always impressed with Willow Nightingale, though she seems to have trimmed down and got a bit more serious about her body shape. And that is not to say that she was anything wrong with her before, but her mobility has improved so much and her strength has improved so much. It's like watching a different wrestler. I know she's had a couple of big injuries and maybe that she's dropped the weight to help recover those injuries. And I think it's been a good move. What's your thoughts on this tag match? Yeah, this this was one of the sort of best matches that came from the, the entire sort of collective. Like, Fire and Flavor just get it. They know what they're there to do. They know how they want to act and they do it. They really knew how to sort of work with Valentine and Nightingale. And yeah, it was just an amazing display of tag team wrestling. Also, yeah, did um, you did you see what Valentine pulled the next day? No, what was that? She did the world's most convincing fake injury angle ever. Because she oh, was wow. in a, she was actually in a match against Willow Nightingale for Ali Cat's real hot girl shit. And yeah. uh, Valentine goes for a sort of cartwheel handspring back elbow and she falls like she's just like destroyed her knee Willow mm-hmm. obviously goes to tend to her the ref sort of looks sort of shocked and confused and then they're sort of about to help her to the back and mm-hmm. then 
just as they're about to go behind the curtain, Valentine just smacks Nightingale in the face. And it's, <laughs> it's been a ruse for about 10 minutes. It's... Wow. Like, absolute best fake injury angle I've ever seen. <laughs> because it was, it was believable as well, because we'd already had, like, three sort of horrific injury-type things happen, yes, the day before. Yeah. Because Gino Medina passed out from dehydration. American Beetle got murdered. And... Oh, Not literally, by the way, we'd like to point that out. No, no, he, <laughs> he was walking by the end of it, but, oh, God. Yeah. Talk about a horrifying open match, opening match for it all. And Levi Everett had suffered some heat-related stuff as well, so... Just, yeah. It was so perfectly believable, executed in such a perfect way. It was just like... People were on edge, so therefore more likely to believe it. And also, that's the thing as well. If you immerse yourself in pro wrestling for, two, for an extended period of time, you'll believe anything. Because <laughs> you buy into it. And obviously, obviously, if you've had a losing tag team title match the night before, there is absolute potential for you to turn heel because you know, you're going to blame somebody else. And yeah, well, shout out to Faye Jackson, who's retiring now. She had a big shoulder injury, um, and she she tried to run the the sweatpants bar royal last year's uh, collective and didn't come off because of the COVID stuff because she couldn't get everybody in that she wanted to get in it. She ran it this year but couldn't wrestle in it herself because she was injured, and she decided that she no longer wants to be a professional wrestler. So I wish her all the best in whatever she does next yeah. because Faye Jackson has been an awesome person for professional wrestling. Thank you for everything, Fair. The, the wrestling world has definitely been left better because you were in it. Yeah, absolutely. Next up was kind of dad wrestling. G- John Davis and BB Smooth, eight minutes and 15 seconds. I like John Davis. He's ace. Oh, John Big. Davis scares the, the life out of me. He is so damn like heavy hitting. It's. Oh, it's terrifying. <laughs> he was in the ICW Battle of the Tough Guys tournament the next night and he he knocked out Calvin Tankman. <laughs> he knocked out he'd uh, tapped out Dominic Garini before this show. It genuinely John Davis was going on a tear through the collective and oh god this match was awesome. Because PB Smooth is massive. Like six nine just ready to kick your head in type wrestler and Davis just brought the fight to him and won. It's just oh Yeah. No, I just 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 big lads wrestling. Old school kind of os fight and not a lot to be said about it. It wasn't pretty but it was a good, well told story and that's kind of like what I wanted to see out of these two guys. Each other artists and see who stands at the end. And that was cool. That was fun. I also love the fact that Davis has changed his uh, finisher name to the Grand Man Driver now after Suge D said it on commentary. Because <laughs> <laughs> there's been like commentary sort of di- like debates over the past few days. Suge D, Percy Jackson, and Billy Dixon did a fantastic job. They were commentating the- this show. Best commentary team I've heard in a long while, to be honest with you. Perfectly ba- balanced. Um, Chug D is an excellent professional wrestling commentator because he knows so many different styles of wrestling. 
and Billy Dixon knows how to get people over. This was just perfect color commentary for a perfect wrestling show. Just the right guys to do the job. They know the wrestlers and they know how to make it work. And I just love like hearing Percy Jackson. He's so sort of like happy to commentate. He knows what he's talking about. He knows how to interact with his sort of color commentators. And yeah, he's just he's really damn good at it. Yes. So if somebody, one of the bigger companies, needs new commentary talent, there's plenty of decent commentary talent about, though. That's the thing. Mauro Ronaldo is coming back to wrestling commentary to commentate on Rich Swan versus Kenny Omega. That's going to uh, be interesting. Yes. With Matt Stryker and D'Lo Brown. <laughs> like, what? Eh? But yeah, so that's going to be that's going to be a bit unreal. And I'll be the first like Omega match that Ronaldo have been commentated on since the New Japan days. I think he left New Japan commentary just before Omega turned up, so be intriguing. But Ronaldo was the best New Japan commentator out of all of them, except maybe Kevin Kelly. Uh, when when he wasn't being like fed WWE lines, Ronaldo is just an amazing commentator. Yeah, he's he is amazing. He's absolutely really really good. Um, he has some issues and he takes his time to fix them and that's the way it should be um but again you know jr described him as a complete workaholic as well like when he isn't commentating on wrestling he's commentating on mna and he's commentating on boxing you know he just flies all over the place in fact to the point where jim ross was like was really concerned about his health to be honest with you so um yeah it's i'm glad he's coming back to wrestling on his terms for a big match um, and it's really, really cool. Slightly concerned that no one in AEW seems to know this match is going on between Kenny Omega and and, and Rich Swan because they don't seem to mention it in, on AEW. It's been a very one-sided partnership. Yeah, it's a bit weird that way. Though, to be fair, Eddie Edwards threatened to sort of just kick that forbidden door in and just invade him at AEW, and I'm all for that because it's Eddie Edwards, and he's awesome. <laughs> Except for that haircut, which is dreadful. But anyway, moving on. Uh, next up was Darius Lockhart. He defeated... Bra- no, we missed one out. Calvin Tankman defeated Andy Brown, frontman Jar, and Mylon Reed in 8 minutes 30 seconds in a four-way match. It was kind of another let's-get-everybody-on-the-card kind of match, but it was perfectly fine for what it was. And Calvin Tankman. Do like me some Calvin Tankman. What are your thoughts on this one, John? Yeah, this this was just another sort of cluster of amazing talent, just sort of all-going nuts. Myron Reed, Calvin Tankman, both friends, both MLW stars, and both were just like, right, we're going to kill everyone, including each other. And yeah, Tankman got the big win because it's Calvin Tankman, and even in three-on-one sort of situation, he's most likely going to kill you. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, it's not like you see say about it. It, was kind of, it wasn't a squash, but it wasn't far off because it wasn't long enough. To, the people got showcased, but it was kind of all about Tankman, really. To be fair, Whereas, Myron Reed scared the hell out of everyone by doing a bloody diving cutter out of the ring onto bloody concrete. Well, yes, there is that. True. They had plenty of moments in it, but it wasn't like anything to write home about as a technical wrestling match, would you say? It was more a sort of car crash. This is yeah. what's gonna, this is everyone's sort of fight type thing. Right, the next up was Darius Lockhart and Brian Keith. Eleven minutes and four seconds. And it was okay. It wasn't the best thing on the card, but it was certainly good enough to keep everyone's attention together, but it wasn't anything to write home about. But 
Really? It's kind of an in-between. Yeah, I didn't see it as like the best thing I saw out of the weekend. I didn't think there was anything wrong with it. But the trouble is, there was a lot of high standards on these cars, wasn't there? So maybe I just kind of reached fatigue point by then. This was my um, favourite match from the show. Because okay. with For the Culture, there is always a sort of wrestling as a work of art match. In the first one, it was um, Shogdi versus Trisha Dara, which was yeah. the perfect example of a slow burn, intense title match where both fighters are out to do whatever it took to put the other down because they both want to prove how good they were. In this one, it was Lockhart coming back after being out for over a year. He was trying to prove the revolution was still going. His revolution was still going, and he had like one of, an incredibly game opponent in Brian Keith, the bounty hunter. And mm. this was all about sort of Lockhart trying to prove A, he could still wrestle properly, there was no ring rust. And B, it was about Keith trying to sort of take this spotlight, take this bag and just win and yeah it to me it just meshed perfectly because i've been watching like car crash matches story matches just you name <laughs> it all day and when when you get a match that's so perfectly invested in its story the action fits around it and both guys are just sort of giving it everything then yeah this this kind of just felt like the wrestling work of art match for me I feel bad now because I didn't get all of that myself. I thought it was like an intriguing story. I didn't think it was dreadful. I thought it was a good watchable match, but I didn't think it was as good as you thought it was. And that's fine. It's okay. I feel I, I feel bad that I should have. I'm going to rewatch it, I think, and try and try and get more out of it. I mean, I Maybe might have overanalyzed it there. It's just, <laughs> I don't know. As I was watching it, I was sort of like, oh, damn, this is where they, this is what they're going for here. And it was, it's because, um, like, I just happened to check, like, I was obviously doing research and stuff for, like, pre the preview I had to write. Mm. And I saw, saw that it was, like, Lockhart's first match back. And I was like, okay, so there's probably going to be something special here. Okay. And... Yeah, maybe I just didn't get the the overall over of it as well as you did. So I will have another watch of it and, and see if I can reassess it in my head. Shall we move on to Trey Lamar, Trey Lamar and Eli Knight, 12 minutes and 6 seconds. I thought this was really good. I like this one. What did you think of this one? Yeah, this this is like the battle of the cocky ones. <laughs> both guys have like confidence in spirit and just, oh god. <laughs> it was a high-flying meets technical meets just hit each other really hard sort of <laughs> match up because again both are young cocky and are just like yeah I'm better no I'm better no I'm better yeah no I that's that's it I was like I kind of just dig this one for that point of view just a bit more visceral I think perhaps There's and a lot uh, going on yeah so it just may be easy for me to get my head around but I thought it was good I I like this one a lot and uh, it was it was a well put together piece of work, definitely. Next up was an intriguing matchup because we're getting to the last three matches that we're going to talk about. But AJ Gray versus JTG. Um, that was a lot of initials there. Forty minutes and ten seconds. Obviously, JTG comes with a reputation, former WWE wrestler, and AJ Gray is the booker for for the culture. 
And there was the point there that was like, AJ Gray tends to get book himself up in these dream matches. And is it really fair that AJ Gray gets to book the dream matches? Because that makes him give better opportunities to himself. Um, and that was part of the story of the match as well. And AJ Gray takes the win in this particular match, besting the, the WWE legend. So it was an intriguing storytelling device. And what did you think of this one, Josh? The AJ Gray is one of the best wrestlers on the indies right now. Like, yeah. He is one of the most versatile performers out there. He can talk. He can brawl. He can death match. He's just one of the best. And yeah, he, he has a habit of booking himself into dream matches. But again, when they are back, when they're this good, I will accept it. <laughs> again, this was just a complete sort of we're going to try to murder each other match. Like, yeah, within the first couple of minutes, we had Gray just throwing one of the most lethal lariats known to man. <laughs> it it was just kind of right how the hell's j2g gonna come back from that and yeah it's just it was so much fun to watch and the sort of post-match angle was just as fun yes uh this would be what billy dixon came off of commentary and attacked aj gray with, uh, a, chair. with a chair and it was it was a bit because billy wasn't really turning heel as it were. He just was kind of taking care of business, was the way he put it, really. Billy wants AJ Gray. Yes. Um, and it reflected on the match because AJ gets the big matches with the big stars, and whereas, why does Billy not even get on the card? And that's a brilliant angle to work from. A touch of realism is all you need, isn't it? It was also tying into the fact that AJ Gray managed to sleep through last year's big gear brunch when he was supposed to fight. Billy yeah. <laughs> so he, <laughs> he felt like that portion of the culture had been disrespected and it was all leading to one of the most brutal matches on the Sunday where AJ Gray and Billy Dixon took part in a pup collar match which had light two bundles broken in the first second. Well, there you go. So a lot of this stuff pays off. Even a year later, things are paying off. So yeah, this is good storytelling and picking up on good storytelling. It's like I I think it's all down to like Dixon, a lot of it because he is a booking genius as is Gray, yeah. And it's just because I was I actually did the Cassandra Cup and Dixon's match against Darius Carter was a murder mm. for like a lot of it. And again, just I feel like it's just Dixon and Dixon knowing the business. It's just yeah. awesome. There's some people, I mean, a lot of the people, JTG knows the business really, really well as well. You can tell as well by the way people wrestle matches and present themselves. Some people have a better understanding of the business than others do. Like, having a wrestling IQ is really important to being a long-term wrestler. Andre the Giant, believe it or not, had one of the best wrestling IQs of any active professional wrestler in his day. He understood booking because he was good friends with great bookers. You know, he was friends with Vince McMahon Sr. He was friends with Giant Baba. He was friends with Antonio Inoki. He knew how to book wrestling matches. He knew how to put things together. He knew how to tell a story. Even with the limited skills he had towards the end of his career, he was the perfect person to main event WrestleMania three. not because he was a massive star. He was. 
but he knew how to make that match work with the skill sets he had and Hulk Hogan had. And you can tell in the end, towards the end of this show, all of these guys have got great wrestling IQs and they're getting the absolute very best out of each other to make the card work at the top end of the scale, which is really important. And I was really impressed with that. There's a certain polish to this that other shows of similar kind of standard don't, don't necessarily have. Does that make sense? Yeah. There was okay. parts as well as style. Yeah. Uh, next up, Lee Moriarty defeated Leo Rush, rather surprisingly, in 17 minutes and 30 seconds in the semi-main event. I thought this was brilliant. I really enjoyed this. What did you think of it, John? No, I completely agree. It's Lee Moriarty, Leo Rush, two of the best on the indies. I've said that a lot, but there are just a lot of best on the indies at the moment. <laughs> like Lee Moriarty is, again, the perfect example of a wrestler who can do almost anything and is smart enough to know how to. Yeah. Like there is a reason people are continuously referring to him as the best professional wrestler on the indies. And again, he helped tell a brilliant story here because he was obviously going into this one injured mm. and just they built around that yeah it, it's it's just good stuff and again Leo Rush has that polish to him because he's you know he's wrestled for everyone hasn't he he's wrestled for Ring of Honor he's wrestled for New Japan WWE big shows in the indies he's 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 that guy he's he's got the whole package he's you know, a star, and he wrestles like a star too, in whatever style you put him in. Yeah, it's this is the sort of match you'll get when you have two guys that know how to work, wanting to put on the best match they can in the spot they've got. Yeah, and that's it. And then we get to our main event of the evening. The 56-year-old Two Cold Scorpio goes 17 minutes and 22 seconds with the Impact Wrestling Heavyweight Champion of the World Rich One. By the way, that was a bloody hard 17 minutes and 22 seconds. There was no, there was no slack in this matchup. I do believe Tuchel Scorpio is a force of nature. <laughs> he definitely should be, given how well he is still moving at 56 years old. Earth, he... wind, fire, Tuchel Scorpio. And he goes from being like the fun-loving party guy with his entrance, like Jungle Boogie is one of the absolute best entrance themes on the planet. It was about 7, nearly 8am when this match hit. I'd been <laughs> awake for hours and I was still just enjoying myself because of that. And, oh man, this match. Oh, this match. You were right, it, it, it really hit. Yeah, no slack, all, all force, all just ouch. Yeah, they they were on it and they were after it and it was a ton of fun. I would watch two Cold Scorpio wrestle in a phone booth. It was just amazing to watch it. And, you know, Rich Swan is no slouch. He knows how to put a wrestling match together. Um, interesting point. It wasn't Leo Rush, WWE Cruiserweight champion. Yes. So that's like two former WWE Cruiserweight champions are on this show. <laughs> and it's, ironically enough, both had amazing matches. Yeah, just like, what goes on with that Cruiserweight division? So whoever gets that belt leaves or gets fired. 
Oh, so that means we'll be seeing El Hijo de Fantasma back soon then. Yes, he'll be back in AAA before you can oh, no. draw. Oh, God, yeah, we might do, actually, because he just lost the belt to Kushida. Yeah. <laughs> that was it. Kushida left, just want to point out this week. It's great that Kushida won the Cruiserweight Championship. Don't get me wrong. However, like, this is... He left New Japan two years ago because he didn't want to be a junior anymore. And uh, he was sick of... He, he wanted to be wanted to be heavyweight, so he went to WWE to be a heavyweight, and now he's Cruiserweight Champion. <laughs> yeah, it's a painful irony, but... Eh. I don't think... Uh, I don't think he should have gone to WWE if he wanted to be considered a heavyweight. Because it's the Land of Giants, and he is not very big. If he'd gone to Ring of Honor or even Impact, he'd have been heavyweight champion four or five times over by now. <laughs> I think WWE has this weird habit of like taking like top Japanese talent. It keeps them for a couple of years, and then it does something with them. Because it took it took them a couple of years to make like turn Io Shirai into like the best NXT Women's Champion has been. It took a couple of years to get Asuka off the ground. They've just, they always take their time with the Japanese talent. I, again, it didn't help Kushida's case. No, I think this is, someone pointed out to me on Twitter, I think I was talking about on Twitter this week, is, is Asuka the biggest Japanese star in wrestling history? And to a North American audience, I think she is. I think there's bigger Japanese wrestling stars, you know, Inoki, Baba, Richie Dozan, um, even Fujinami and uh, Ashimoto and Muto. All of those guys would be bigger worldwide than Asuka is, really. But certainly out of the most recent Japanese performers, I can't think of anyone who's about a bigger impact than Asuka has. She is 100% uh, made WWE work for her. Yeah, she has. But she did that. She would do that anywhere. Asuka was... We've just been talking about wrestling minds. Asuka has the best wrestling mind of any active wrestler on planet Earth. She knows exactly what she's doing and she knows how to press buttons other people haven't even thought existed. You know, she's, <laughs> she essentially blackballed herself from the industry in like 2013 and then became the biggest name in Joshi despite the fact she could only work in two offices and one of them was her own but essentially she blackballed herself out of stardom she blackballed herself out of Oz Academy for a while she blackballed herself out of everywhere except for JWP and uh, Kana Productions and then she ended up being the big, a bigger star than anyone else in the industry Explain that one. <laughs> you know, she's that good. She could do Vince McMahon's job easily with one hand tied behind her back if they'd let her. In my opinion, anyway. I don't feel like I could argue with that, to be honest. No, she's she's on another planet. Anywho. Hannah is also the only person to have had a match I've watched that's been set to music. Oh, the one with uh, Maker Samora. Yeah, yeah, it's that's intense, uh, absolutely intense. And uh, the she tagged with uh, Naomichi Marufuji against Minoru Suzuki and Mika Satmar as well. Yet yeah, she's also done like comedic matches where she did the all hip attack match, teamed up with Kenny Omega. 
Yeah, yeah, and she had matches with Sakura Hotter as well. Sakura Hotter as well. It's yeah, she's just she's just incredible. And she, uh, you talk about blood sports. She was the first person to have a shoot style wrestling promotion in Japan for women. That there was, was the yeah. Her uh, Counter Productions was, I think it was Counter Productions when she left Sun Promotions. She, or just after she finished with Triple Tales, she presented professional wrestling the way she wanted professional wrestling to be presented. And it was no pinfall submissions and knockouts only kind of wrestling. I know some big names, Makers that Mori did it, Nana Takahashi did it when they were still talking to one another. <laughs> <laughs> So, yeah, it's intriguing. But anywho, we're kind of getting off the point here. This main event was absolutely outstanding. Really, really good. And, uh, yes, you should watch it. Have you any other thoughts on For the Culture as a show and a concept, John? I love the fact it exists. For, like, the past two years running now, it's been one of the better shows of the collective. AJ Grid books amazing cards, even if he doesn't want to do it anymore. (laughs) And, (laughs) yeah, it's just... It's great to see representation in wrestling like that's that's always something that matters because wrestling is supposed to be for everyone so why can't people see everyone this is the this the bit that annoys me and especially this week um as when the the amount of like burner accounts that developed after sasha and bianca headlined wrestlemania going the match wasn't that good and Colour doesn't matter to me. And some people weren't burner accounts, it was their own accounts going, colour doesn't matter to me. I don't see colour. And it's like, well, you may not do. Guess what? The rest of the world does. Whether you do or not, whether you see it or not. And little girls who like wrestling should see wrestlers that look like them. And not all women in the not all little girls in the world have got blonde hair and blue eyes. There's nothing wrong with having blonde hair and blue eyes. That's perfectly fine. But some people have afro hair and dark skin and brown eyes, and they should be represented too. And I would also point out that Sasha Banks is one of the best female wrestlers ever, and would argue that Sasha Banks is the best female wrestler in North America has produced in the last 20 years. In my humble opinion. And I agree one of the best wrestlers North America has produced in the last 20 years. And Bianca Belair is incredibly talented and full of talent and deserves everything that she's getting this week because she is an incredibly talented woman. And I see a very little ceiling on what she can do as a professional wrestler. But that's the whole point. Representation does matter. You know, it's, it's important to have these things happen. They should be celebrated as a positive. And, um, yeah. And I don't, I don't get people who say I don't see colour. It's like, so you're ignoring the issues of the world then and hoping they all go away. <laughs> and it just doesn't... I Just what? <laughs> well, maybe that's just me. It's like, I believe in equality, but I'm not naive enough to see that there aren't issues here. No, that's it. That's, that's what... <sighs> That's that's how it happens. You know, this is how you get a fairer society is by having good examples of people in charge of a wide and varied backgrounds. The one of the reasons why the current government we have in Britain causes problems for itself is 
because it's a boys' club and there's only two or three women in that cabinet and then they can't understand why they screw things up when it comes to women's issues all the time. They're terrible at it. They really are. Because there isn't enough women in the cabinet to, to tell them, hey, this isn't going to work because of this. And that, that happens all the time. you know. So if you have an organisation that's representative of the people that it's representing, the organisation will be a better thing. It will save you money in the long run. It's been proven. If you have a reflective body of people within the workforce to reflect the customer base, you will understand all the problems of that customer base. Statistically speaking, it is far better for you. And companies that don't do it are doing themselves a disservice. But there you are. Anywho, there's a bit of business sense for you. Thank you very much for your time today. My name is James Trupani. You can find me on Twitter at Sheriff Lone Star. John, where can we find you, sir? You can find me on Twitter at John Deathman. That is the gateway of hell to find all my writings, all 25 plus shows I've written <laughs> about in a seven day <sighs> week. Because I did all the collective. Half the IWTV showcase, a bunch of Chocker Pro, two MLWs, two Paradigms, and yeah, a Partridge and a Petri. Petri, yes, I was about to say April. that. So, yes, <laughs> I, I'm kind of trying to prove myself as an iron journalist now, apparently. Or an idiot. But yes, you will find links to everything and my opinions on Twitter, John Deathman. I'm dead close to 300 followers, not sure where that crept up from. And oh. yeah. There's... See if we can get John to 350 by the end of the week. That would be nice. That's a doable figure. <laughs> I think. But yeah, there's, that, there's, John Deathman on Twitter. Don't be a dick and we'll get along just fine. There's more than 50 people listening to this show, so surely you can all go follow John and then get his, get his numbers up. That would be nice. You can find the show at Troopany Show on Twitter. You can find us on The Troopany Show on Facebook and on Patreon where you can keep The Troopany Show free forever for everyone. Uh, on that note, me and Christy, as you've probably noticed, have been trying to work our way through our new Patreon show. We are doing our second pilot this week, which will be uh, the in the beginning of Minoru Suzuki. And um, we're kind of like looking at formats and what the format's going to be. So feedback to us. Have a listen. Tell us what you think, which formats you like, um, because we want to try and focus on some individuals in modern wrestling history. And that will be a Patreon-exclusive show eventually. But for now, you can enjoy it for free as we work the kinks out of the particular uh, action. Because so that will be coming along later in the week. Uh, we will have the Wrestling Rewind. The boys are back. Dave's a dad now. He's had, well, obviously his wife's had a child, not him. <laughs> so Dara and Dave are back on the show and back watching wrestling again. So they did their WrestleMania review last week. Uh, next week we are either looking at and I think it will be a state of the union of women's professional wrestling with Chelsea Spollen and we're also lining up the very first Next Beginner's Guide to Japanese Wrestling which will be the very first episodes of NOAA and the first episode of AJPW after the NOAA split we're going to compare and contrast that with Alex Watts so all of your favourite presenters of the Troopany show will be featured in the coming weeks we hope you enjoy the Troopany show. And we, of course, will be back with Pro Wrestling Dontaku at some point in the future. So take care, and we'll see you soon. Bye! <laughs>